So welcome to this episode of Table Talk. Table Talk is a moderated discussion led around a literal table where we talk about biblical things, theology, we learn together from God's Word. In this episode of Table Talk, we're going to get to the very heart of what a table is actually for, because we're going to ask, what does the Bible say about eating and about food? So we're going to hear some little snatches from the live event, and we're going to do some studio audio as well. Let's start with understanding where our food actually comes from, and we're going to go over to the live event for the introduction. Let's establish one vitally important biblical principle. And it's this, everything that we eat, every single bite that we put in our mouths is a gift from God. Everything. It is God who made the world. It is God who owns the world. It is God who orders the seasons. It is God who makes the crops grow. Yes, I know that farmers plant them and they water them and they fertilize them and they harvest them. That's the role of mankind, but it is the Lord who makes the crops grow. It is the Lord who feeds the animals. It is the Lord who controls his creation. It is he who feeds us. And God is in control of the food chain. Now that in itself raises some important issues because we do have plenty of food. Sometimes we have too much food. Certainly you can see that in some of our physiques. But we have a huge choices of food as well, haven't we? If you go into the supermarkets and you look around, think of the choice that we have that we didn't have years ago. And yet there are people in this world who literally have no food at all. Now here's the big question. Why do some people have so much and others have so little? Because of sin. And sin brings greed. And greed brings hunger. There's plenty of food in this world to go around. God has made enough in this world for everybody to be fed. But because of man's sin and greed, it isn't equally distributed. We're going to sing Psalm 65 verse 9 to 13. And in the psalm, the psalmist teaches us how God provides food. He's talking to the Lord and he says, You tend the land and water it. You make it rich and good. As you ordain, your streams are full to give the people food. You drench the furrows of the land.
Right, let's ask a question. Does it really matter what we eat? Let's go back to the live event and let's begin with Genesis and look at food just after creation. In the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, at the very first, Adam and Eve were created as vegetarians. How do I know that? Genesis chapter 1 and verse 29. God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them all for food. It was only after the flood, after the dinosaurs were no longer on the earth, that God allowed us to have a meat-based diet. Genesis chapter 9 and verse 3. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I give you the green plants, I give you everything. So we were created as vegetarians. And then after the flood, our diet was expanded and we were allowed to eat meat. But then along came the food laws in Israel. And they were for the Jewish nation. And God restricted the foods that could be eaten by his people. Now that was for their own good. It was for their own health. Certain foods were designated unclean. It was one of the things that separated the people of God and made them different from the surrounding pagan nations. So why are we as Christians eating bacon sandwiches then? Well, I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 10 in your Bible. Peter's been praying and as he's praying, he's very hungry and he wants to have something to eat. And he falls into this dreamlike state. And then in verse 11, it says, I saw heaven opened and an object like a great sheep bound at the four corners, descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again the second time, What God has cleansed, you must not call common. It was a lesson for Peter. He was calling the Gentiles unclean because they didn't eat the special kosher foods that the Jews were eating. It's a lesson. Don't you call anything unclean that God has cleansed and given us. And from that time on, we too have been looking at it like that. We've been saying these are good foods that God has given us. Let us therefore eat them and enjoy them. So that's why. And that's why we eat pork. That's why we're allowed bacon sandwiches and the Jews are not. What about modern food dilemmas? One of the great dilemmas we have in modern day is halal food. It's a Muslim who slaughters an animal on behalf of the Muslim people. He will say, Allah Akbar. Allah is great. And as he does that, he'll pull the knife across the animal's throat. He doesn't stun the animal first. He lets it simply bleed to death. Now, 
Lots of restaurants and some supermarkets are now selling halal meat in their butchery counters or in their restaurants so that they don't offend the Muslims. And you'll sometimes see a wee small notice, only halal meat sold here. And people object to that. They object to it in two, for two reasons. The first reason they object for it, the most basic reason, is the cruelty that's involved. You see, in this country, we normally stun an animal before we kill it, don't we? That's what they do in the slaughterhouse. But in halal slaughter, cows, sheep, chickens, they simply cut their throat and let them bleed to death. And the animals, the animal rights charities will tell you, of course, that that's extremely cruel. The animal can take up to 10 minutes to die. But what about the other objection? Because in essence what's happened here is that the animal has been sacrificed to a false god. That's what's happening in halal slaughter. The animal is being sacrificed to Allah. Allah is a false deity. He's an idol. Now, thankfully for us, this is not a new dilemma. So I want you to turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 23. And we'll see how Paul deals with this very similar problem in Corinth. Because in Corinth, all the meat that was slaughtered, the meat was slaughtered in the pagan temples. So if you wanted to go into the butcher's, in Corinth and buy yourself some meat, you had to buy meat that was slaughtered after being sacrificed to an idol. And Paul deals with this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So let's look at it. I'm going to read from verse 23. Paul says, All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but all things do not edify. Let no one seek his own, but every one the other's well-being. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. For if any of those who do not believe invite you to dinner, and you desire to go, and whatever is set before you, eat whatever is set before you, asking no questions for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, like this is halal, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you and for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. Conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? For if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? Now here's the verse. Mark this in your Bible. Therefore, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Give no offence either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the Church of God, just as I also please all men and all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Imitate me, just as I also imitate Christ. Now what Paul's saying there is this. 
that there's no reason why you shouldn't eat meat that has been ritually slaughtered to a false god, because, in fact, false gods don't exist. Everything in this world belongs to the Lord. We've already learned that tonight. It's the Lord who gives us food. If somebody has slaughtered food to Allah, Allah doesn't exist. Allah is a figment of Muhammad's imagination. It's still the Lord's food. You eat it with a clear conscience. But if it's going to offend somebody else, then let's put it aside and call the waiter and order a vegetable curry instead. And we don't cause offence or cause another brother to stumble. So if you object to halal meat because it's cruel, that's why I object to it. Because halal slaughter is cruel to animals and I don't like that. So personally, if I go into a shop and it says, we only sell halal meat, I'll say I'll go somewhere else. I'm not going to support an industry that promotes cruelty to animals. But if you object just simply because some Muslim has muttered some silly incantation over the meat to a false god, well, that's not a reason to object because it's not Allah's meat. It's the Lord's meat. Okay then, what about dieting and diet plans? Some diets are little more than fads, although obviously those who use them don't think so. The Atkins diet, the South Beach diet, the vegan diet, the keto diet, the paleo diet, the 5 to 2 diet, I'm sure you can think of many, many more. There's even so-called Christian diets, like the Daniel Plan diet. Nobody seems very keen on the John the Baptist diet. I suppose the honey part might be okay. And of course there are people who need to diet for health reasons. To control body weight or blood sugar levels. Celiac disease where gluten-free diet becomes necessary, for example. In those cases the guidance of a nutritionist is always helpful. But the point is that we must never become obsessed with what we eat. That would be to make our food or our diet a false god, an idol. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 18, Paul writes, For many walk of whom I have told you often, and I tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame. So how then should we eat? Well, the Bible tells us that when we eat our food, we should do it with thanksgiving. In the book of Acts, in the early church, Acts chapter 2, we're told that day by day the people attended the temple together, they broke bread together in their homes, and specifically we're told that they received their food with thanksgiving, with glad and generous hearts. Many Christians like to thank God for their food before they eat it. They will say grace, as we call it. Some will do so openly, publicly. Some will do it inwardly, some privately, some as a group. The important thing is whatever way we do it, it must never be for show. And it must never be a mere formality. The most important part of saying grace is actually to be thankful and not just to say the words. To have a thankful attitude in our hearts properly directed to God.
So we're to eat with thanksgiving. And let us eat with confidence. There are more important things in life to worry about. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 6 and verse 25, Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat, or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body, what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat, and the body than raiment? Because our Heavenly Father has promised us that he will care for us. In Psalm 37 verse 25, the psalmist says, I have been young and now I am old, yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken? nor his seed begging bread. There's no doubt that the Lord does watch over us and care for us. We eat with thanksgiving. We eat having confidence in God's provision, and we eat with self-discipline. The Christian must always exercise self-discipline in every area of life. Temperance, after all, is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit's work within our hearts and lives. The fruit of the Spirit is Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. Galatians 5, 22-23 That's certainly true of food. A Christian can't be a glutton, for gluttony is sin. And what about the relationship between food and eating and Christian worship? We grew up in days when our Roman Catholic neighbours would fast from meat on a Friday. They would only eat fish. Then they and some Anglicans would practice Lenten fasts when they would give up something for Lent. And we often wondered if they were in that way practising a kind of good works, trying to earn enough merit to get to heaven. So what is fasting? Well, Jesus speaks of this in his Sermon on the Mount. He says in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 16, When ye fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou fastest, anoint thine head and wash thy face, that thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy Father which is in secret. And thy father, which seeth in secret, shall reward thee openly. The Jews held their market days on Mondays and Thursdays. And in those days the towns would be full of people buying and selling, people from town and country, men and women and children. There's nothing that an actor, a hypocrite, likes better than a good big audience. And those days became a wonderful opportunity for ostentatious worship. The Pharisees would go to great lengths to make sure that everyone knew just how pious they were, just how religious. They would walk through the crowds with their faces disfigured, with their hair uncombed, with their clothes deliberately torn and dirty. They looked the part. It was deliberate. Look at me. I'm fasting. For people like that, there is no spiritual value in their actions whatsoever. Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou fastest, anoint thine head, and wash thy face, that thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Fasting may have some physical or mental benefits, 
It may be good for your physical and mental health, but for spiritual benefit, fasting in and of itself is worthless. For works of any sort cannot save. Fasting can only ever be a response to our realisation of our spiritual condition, our sorrow. And yet even though we are deeply sorrowful over our sins, Jesus tells us to look cheerful, to enjoy your fast, to look normal, to make sure that your hair's combed and your face is washed and you look as if you're enjoying yourself and don't tell anyone else what you're doing. Do it in secret. And only then will we gain a spiritual reward from our fast. And that reward will be given to us by our Heavenly Father. And the reward that we get for our fast may well be an open witness to other men and women. And of course, ultimately, when we think of the relationship between food and our Christian life, we think of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus, who tells us himself that he is the bread of life. Our true satisfaction doesn't come from what we eat. We like food. We enjoy a nice meal. But none of those things will satisfy the soul. Like everything else in life, the satisfaction of a full stomach lasts only a short time before it must be replenished. But the satisfaction we get from our knowledge and relationship with Christ, knowing him as our Lord and Saviour, satisfies us not just for time, but for all of eternity. Man shall not live by bread alone. Jesus is the true bread of life. So let's conclude with some words from the live event. There's lots more about food in the Bible, far more than we could cover in one single lesson. So what you should do, get a good concordance, uh, whether in a book form or online software, get stuck in, study God's word. You'll soon become intrigued and fascinated and you'll get drawn into it more and more and you'll gain from it spiritually and practically. And the more you do it, the closer you'll get to knowing and loving Jesus. 